Hello, you're listening to the Life's Too Short podcast with me, Sarah McGinn. On today's episode, I speak with Rebecca Horn, mum to two gorgeous little girls, head of production for DMG Ireland, and as her bio says, professional talker. I want to be there for them. Not, not everyone wants it, and I completely respect that. People really, really want their privacy sometimes with pregnancy loss. Some want a community around them. Some want to scream it from the rooftops. Rebecca talks with me today about her multiple pregnancy losses when looking to conceive her second child. She also tells me about her ectopic pregnancy that brought her to her lowest moments in her fertility journey. Ectopic pregnancies affect about 1 in 80 pregnancies in Ireland and are extremely dangerous for the mother. She talks so openly and so beautifully about her experiences and she also tells me about how she thinks her grief has changed her for the better. All of our episodes deal with death and grief, but this episode deals with fertility loss and may not be suitable for all listeners. Hello, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us here today on Life's Too Short. How are you doing? I'm good, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Very honoured to be on this podcast. It's such a brilliant podcast, a great platform. So thank you. Oh, thanks. I really, I don't underestimate how difficult it is to talk about what are the hardest times in people's lives. So I really appreciate yourself and any previous guests who come on and feel like they can share because it's super, super hard. I shared my own story a couple of weeks ago with stretch marks with Sinead Moore. And wow, it was, it takes a lot from you. I had a good old cry to that one. I think it was, (laughs) I think you were superb. I think it's, um, you to obviously it was, uh, you know, it's still very raw and I thought you were absolutely brilliant. And and what it does is it opens up the conversation. So as hard as it is, it can be very necessary. Yeah. I think I'm understanding that a lot with this podcast as well. How, how many people are affected by grief that maybe I hadn't given credit for. I felt like when I was going through my own grief that it was very lonely, it was very isolating. And I think once you kind of move past those initial stages and you start talking to other people, not that it makes it any less sad for you, but you kind of, I don't know, you kind of feel part of something with other people who have also experienced this pain. So doesn't Gwyneth Paltrow say it um, when her dad died and, you know, her beloved dad and I know we we look at celebrities and their privileged lives and we kind of go, oh, they don't know trauma. But she said, you know, when her dad died, it was like she joined the sad club. You're suddenly in a club with sad and you don't want to be in it. And it's a kind of awful place to be. But that's the club that you're in now. That's it for life. You're always going to be quite sad about that. And it obviously gets a little easier, but that's Mm. the club. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, that's, yeah, that's put it, Gwyneth Paltrow, she put it so right. She did, she did, Um, yeah, yeah. But it is, and it's like, as you say, it's that, like, gang that you do not want to be part of, and it just kind of takes you in whether you like it or not. Um, So I want to, obviously, you're here to share your story, um, which, you know, I've been doing some reading myself. I think you've spoken so beautifully about it, and you've written really great articles, and you've been interviewed by other people about this as well. Um, And you've just spoke about it so, so well. I would love maybe if you could take me back to 2019, perhaps before everything started kind of kicking off for you. It was yourself, it was your husband, it was your daughter Gia. And I suppose it was maybe this mutual decision to decide to have another child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was absolutely. And obviously um, a funny time in the world because COVID had hit full throttle and everyone was going through grief and various stages around the world we were watching um on tv how italy was suffering so terribly from the loss of people particularly the elderly in communities then it was you saw madrid in major lockdown all of america china and it was just so rampant that that was the you know what we were watching and it was so visceral and then in my own very small life i was just kind of 
going about my charmed life and just hoping to expand my family. I thought this is probably, you know, good a time as any, you know, yes, I'm working, but there's a kind of a quietness within that lockdown where you can kind of hide away a little bit. You can worry about your family and expanding it if that is what you want. And, you know, maybe do it in the privacy kind of you're not on stage as much or in work as much or seeing people as much. And it's a great time to do it because there's not a hell of a lot else going on at that time. And I thought maybe this is as good a time. And I must, you know, I must caveat everything by saying I have been extremely lucky and privileged with my grief story in my life because I have both of my parents who are in my late in their late 70s. Um, fantastic people who I'm glad to say are the closest people in my life to me and they're here and my husband is is fortunate as well with the same and other than that you know besides animals dying when I was a kid I never had grandparents growing up so I never had to go through that grief right of losing a grandparent I just didn't have any on either side and so it was usually a dog passing away and the grief of that you know like the passing of animals or the grief of relationship ending or a friendship ending or a thing so to kind of grieve and a like a human thing or an actual thing that you had perhaps created or something you both felt very strongly about it was very new to me and and perhaps it's why it was so alarmingly raw at the time I had been very fortunate and suddenly things just got very um dark for a while and I'm lucky that I'm you know on the other side of that but yeah we decided to have a second child I think you're told and it's not always the case but you're told sometimes when your child is 18 months to two years you start to feel that broodiness for another or you don't and then you kind of decide maybe that's it and I was in my mid-30s and I definitely felt a broodiness I had been in Japan for the Rugby World Cup with work before Covid had hit and I'd had what's called a chemical pregnancy it's kind of when you have an early uh, miscarriage it's certainly not poo-pooing it for people or kind of dumbing it down or making it seem, but it was, it was something that came to me like a period, but it had been late and I had had a positive pregnancy test. So I had to kind of go through that, but was definitely not devastated or traumatized or it wasn't really on my radar and I had been traveling. But when I returned home, I became obsessed with having a second child. It was definitely all consuming um, not sure why that is. I don't know if it's some great maternal instinct in me, but I was definitely on the path. And I think maybe it's because everything else seemed to be falling apart around us in the world that I wanted this second baby. Anyway, we went about trying and I had very good luck with my first pregnancy with regards to fertility. I got pregnant very quickly, which I know is not the case for hundreds of thousands of women, if not more, but it, I, I was very lucky. And so I thought this is going to be the same again. And yes, I was correct. I kept getting pregnant. But Sarah, I wasn't retaining these pregnancies. And that kind of is the beginning of that story. It just was kind of loss after loss and then a very extreme loss. Yeah, which continued kind of for the year. It just kind of was just a miserable time. Yeah, this was all over 2020. It was kind of contained to that. Not contained, I mean, because it will live with you forever. But the... um, the events as such were contained to 2020. So October, I would have returned from the World Cup. I was a little bit sick. I had kind of mild pneumonia, put it that way. I had very low oxygen levels. I think it was pure exhaustion from work, the travel to Japan, the returning home, the early loss. Anyway, so I was pretty unwell, but defiant and like, I'm going to try to get pregnant on my next cycle. And we did. And over that Christmas period, there was announcements as we always see them on Instagram and everywhere. And people have been telling me about this one. And she's very, and family members, I was happy for them. And 
I knew that I was in the early stage of, of a pregnancy too. And I just remember over Christmas week ringing to book in an early scan mm-hmm. and to get that situation on the go. And coming back to work in January, which we know is pretty grim anyway. (laughs) It's not that great. Like you're feeling about everything. It's very dark and dreary. You know, you're heading into like 9,000 weeks in January anyway. But I thought this is amazing. I've got this baby, you know. Mm. And over the course of the first few weeks in January, I just kept getting this intermittent bleeding, just but didn't want to think about it because I knew there was a scan coming up. And I just Mm -hmm. thought, hmm. And obsessively started testing. So I would test and it would have, you know, the one to two weeks, two to three, three to four weeks, and it tends to stop there. So I knew it was progressing. Mm-hmm. And so I'd go off on my lunch break. I would leave my workplace to go and test in kind of a local cafe. I don't know why I felt like that was something I should do, but I did. And it just, yeah, it was, something was bothering me. I was getting these little bleeds. And my husband was like, I'm sure it's fine. And then what happened was I tested, I think the third week in Jan and it was, um, a negative immediately. And it was what was happening was it was already, you know, the HTC levels were already obviously dying and it was going. And I remember being like, this can't be and going off and buying, spending 24 euro or something on more tests. Yeah. And then being completely like, what is this? You know, just shock, shocked, really, Sarah. Yeah. And just kind of the sadness then. I remember just being like, oh God, I'm actually, no, I really wanted this. This can't be, you know, just not really understanding. Yeah. But very quickly, I then kind of did this kind of like, okay, well, we've got to just move on from this. You know, I didn't really deal with that. So was gutted and was like, we've got to keep on this. Even though my husband had kind of said, I think your body is still wrecked from this mild pneumonia and from everything and work and you're tired. But no, I was determined. And for whatever reason, at some point in just trying to think, I think it was early March. I was at a yoga class and I was feeling queasy and woozy. I'd been feeling a bit rubbish actually in work, queasy. And it's important to kind of state how I felt, really nauseous, very dizzy and faint. It was as if I'd been on the, the booze for nights in a row, you know, that kind of spinning, very tired, like strangely tired, you know, light on my feet, kind of like I wanted to just fall down. And then I was having this spotting and I was at a yoga class and I thought, God, could I be pregnant again? Hardly. I mean, could I be? No, God, sure. We've only tried a bit and I've just had, January has only just, but I went and got a test and lo and behold, it said that I was pregnant and it seemed to say that I was three to four, you know, it seemed to yeah. say that I was, which would equal six to eight weeks or eight to, you know, further, further along on those tests. And I thought that can't be right. But I was completely over the moon, like completely just like, oh my God, you know, but was concerned that I was having this strange feeling and was bleeding a little bit, but thought, mm, you know, so what happened was I went to my doctor because I thought instead of doing all this testing and all this nonsense over and over, I'll go to her to confirm it because that'll be great because I really found it quite uh, traumatizing. I'd been at the GP previously before my scan for the other to confirm this loss. And I was really hoping she'd say to me, no, you're just really crap at reading pregnancy tests. But she's like, <laughs> yeah, no, you are spot on. And I remember she just said, yes, you have lost that. And I just couldn't cope. I broke down in the car. My daughter was in the car. So it was all very traumatic. So this time I thought I want to go in on my own and for her to confirm this pregnancy or not, but I want to sort this now. I don't want to continue working. So I went down to Ranala to the doctor. She did a urine test and she said, oh my God, yes, you are pregnant. And I was like, oh my God, you, you know, is there any, cause you have that nervousness that'll go again. You know, it's going to mm. go. 
well, it looks very strong, Rebecca. I think we need to do bloods as well. I said, oh, why? She said, I don't know. I just, I think we should do bloods. So she did what's called emergency bloods, which meant that they would be back that next morning at seven. Mm -hmm. So thrilled to bits with myself. I got myself home and I said to Jason, you know, I don't know what stage I'm at. I could be 90,000 weeks. I could be two weeks pregnant, but I'm pregnant. And it is confirmed through a urine test and she's going to send bloods off. And he was kind of confused. He was like... It's all a bit strange and funky. I mean, I know we've been trying, but it's it's all a bit strange that it's happening soon after that one. And he didn't really know what was happening, I think. She rings at seven the next morning and she says, are you somewhere quiet? I said, yeah, I'm home getting ready my, for my child to go to the crash." And she goes, look, the good news is you are pregnant through the bloods. But the strange news is, is that your HGC levels are really elevated. And I said, oh my God, that means I'm really far along. Maybe that one in January never, maybe never went. And this mm-hmm. is from November. So this would be a five month. Maybe I'm just not showing and I was completely spiraling. And I bet I'm five or six months pregnant or am I four months? And she said, look, I don't know, Rebecca, whether you're eight, 10, 12, six, I don't know. But I know that the HCC levels are very elevated. That's what she kept saying. She was quite medical and clinical. And I said, I couldn't hear anything bad. I was only hearing the good news. I was like, this is all great. She goes, well, what I want you to do is get your child to crash. And I want you to go straight to Hollis Street. And I want you to go in and get checked there. Just don't have a great feeling. Um, She was very calm. She was really reassuring. But she said, look, I'm hoping this is all great. But I'm, and I forever owe my life to this woman. I think it's really important to say, um, I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to name her necessarily. I wrote her a letter since. She's the most wonderful, beautiful person. I was with her in the practice in Ranla before I moved out to Wicklow and she was always wonderful. But this was something she discovered way before anyone else probably would have. And I was sent into Hollis Street and I was giddy with excitement. Honestly, Sarah, I was giddy with excitement. <laughs> I even thought I might give birth that day, you know? Yeah. And my husband didn't really know what was happening. He was very much like, do you need to lift home? Will I just bring it in? Will I wait? And I was kind of like, no, I'm grand. Like, she could send me in there and I can walk to work from Hollis Street. He was like, grand. So I went in and it was all very eerie from there on. I got scanned. I had an, ex- an internal examination. Mm-hmm. obviously really painful and very strange when you're that early on as you can imagine and all I remember was there was a lot of I can't find it I can't see it it's not sure I'm like what the hell is happening like my doctor has confirmed you know pretty f- far along pregnancy I've high HTC levels I'm you can see my tests I'm pregnant you know quite cross you know with this kind of mystery and I went back down to be scanned again by a lady um a gorgeous lady who started feeling me quite not not um aggressively but a little bit more thoroughly around my stomach really pressing where the scanner was concerned to see she was quite incredible and she kept moving my tummy and kind of trying to move or you know just fiddling a little bit more than I think had been done previously where they'd just kind of gone and put it on my stomach. And whatever mm-hmm. happened is she goes, there it is. And I could see everything on the screen. As you know, you've, you've gone in for scans and I see this, you know, what they call a bean or, an, you know, embryo or, you know, I see this little, this the start of a baby, a baby is there. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, thank God. And she just said, just, I'll be back in a sec didn't have any bad feeling about this Sarah I was like grand and she came straight back in with the consultant and they delivered the news that the pregnancy was ectopic that it was growing in my fallopian tube my left fallopian tube that it was there 
Uh, I had no clue what they were talking about and that it was out there. And I was thinking, okay, cool. We need to get that, you know, out of there. Like before they kind of sat down and said, this is ectopic. Had you considered there was something wrong or, you know, had you heard of ectopic or anything like that about that pregnancy? I think in my state of bad things, like I've already had kind of crappy things happen recently it's not going to happen again this yeah. was my mindset like why would this happen again to me I'm like what you know I just didn't really understand what she was talking about when she said it was in the fallopian tube I was like okay it's so a tricky this is going to be a high risk pregnancy they're going to have to take this out and move it somewhere to be grand you know that's sorry that's kind of what I thought but I didn't think doom and gloom no no absolutely yeah. not okay. but I could see by them they were like oh this woman has no clue you know and I just said well how do we so do I have to have surgery to move it down and what are the procedures and what and she just said no this isn't we can't salvage this this isn't, this is not okay. You will, you will die if this pregnancy stays in your body. It is really dangerous. Now to be told, told by someone that you've lost a baby is one thing, right? There's nothing, you know, more devastating for a woman and a man and anyone that you've lost a baby. But to be told that your baby in effect could be killing you and is really dangerous to your system and is a threat to your life is actually very, obviously jarring, but just it's a very strange thing to process because you're like, how would, how could that be? You know, I found that very traumatizing. I really just didn't understand what I had done wrong or why this, why am I so unhealthy that this is ending up here? And what have I done? And this all, why am I the strange person who's had an ectopic? No one else has, you know, I didn't understand it. And she explained that it is very rare, but it does happen. And women can die from it if they don't have a clue that they're even pregnant. So you can imagine someone young maybe getting pregnant and not knowing because they're not going in to test or someone who doesn't understand the symptoms of it, Sarah. Like, you know, I was very, very lucky that I was kind of trying for this baby. So I was keeping a real eye on myself, but I was devastated. I think guttural crying would be the word there. I was really upset. Um, I don't know why I was, I mean, people would say, Jesus, record people lose 10, 15 pregnancies. People go through IVF for 10 years and never get pregnant. People lose their babies and still, I understand all of these things are so traumatic, but for whatever reason, this baby in my tube that I desperately wanted, but was told had to come out and had a heartbeat, just really just, Sarah, I don't know, mm. destroyed me. Absolutely. And, and I think that we can't compare grief and I think we can't compare pregnancy loss either because I think as soon as you have a feeling or take a pregnancy test and it comes up positive you're pregnant you're having a baby do you know like from that very instance you have created this you know person in your head who they're going to be what they're going to be like and then for that to be taken away and for that to go away and then for something like this which is just incredibly difficult incredibly dangerous and you've already gone through all the suffering as well like yeah that is just so so painful so so difficult for you it was and am I not a strong person maybe not I don't know if I am I think I'm a very sensitive person I I feel deeply I'm an emotional person I love deeply um I'm quite empathetic I feel like I'm on that sensitive side of the scale and I definitely felt it hard other women I, I know have had ectopics, wonderful women, even women in the media who have just um, been troopers. They also had a very different story, though their outcomes were different. But it was just, it really hit me. And I think I only knew I was pregnant for a second, but yet I felt it really deeply. 
um, compared to the miscarriages I had before this and after this, definitely. I think it's just the whole, it's very grim uh, uh, topic, obviously. And then you're kind of given all these strange options that are kind of thrust at you, which is the way, you know, this is a medical, I'm in the system now, you know, this is it. You know, you're going to have to make a decision today on whether you're going to have the pregnancy taken out of you, surgically removed with the tube. And then you're like, will this affect my fertility long term? What are the answers? Nobody has answers ever. Or we can give you pretty heavy duty medication called methotrexate, um, very dangerous drug, which will stay in your system for a good few months after. And that will obviously dissolve this pregnancy. Those words were used. So you're going to have to go through the crap that is bleeding heavily, losing the pregnancy, but in a very different way, because obviously the tube is affected and it just sounded vile and they said it's very painful. But look, we will bring you in every day to check your bloods and then that'll kind of be it you'll be in great care so I had to kind of make that decision and at that point um, my husband's obviously devastated for me my child was at my sister everyone was taking care of business at home and my mom came in and she was just I mean you know with moms like she was just amazing and I really was on the floor um, with regards to how I felt and then I asked this beautiful this nurse and I said can I go get a muffin across the road I just wanted some sugar I wanted to get the hell out of there I kind of wanted to run away and she said unfortunately if you leave this hospital Rebecca you could die and I remember going but I'm walking around with my clothes and makeup on I'm completely fine I have no terminal illness I'm great what are you talking about she's like this is how dangerous an ectopic is so I really want to hit home about this for people because you should never ignore things that are bothering you we're very good at saying I'm feeling tired I'm nauseous I'm stressed it's my period it's this and you just don't know and I did not know this was going on anyway I was um administered the methotrexate as as vile as it sounded I thought that'll be that after a few weeks and I'll get on with my life whereas the other seemed pretty hardcore one of the doctors who remain nameless did come down to me and say I think you should go with the surgery because I think this might rupture and if it does, it's going to be hell on earth. So I think you should go with the the surgical route. I was just like, God, he's not my actual consultant. I can't believe he's giving me this advice, you know. But anyway, he was a pretty smart guy. Uh, so I took the methotrexate, super depressed. Instantly, when I re- arrived at my home that evening, I had a massive bleed. When I say massive, it was just so devastating. It was a really... It was very, it was really gross anyway to look at physically in the toilet, but it was also very painful and it was very hard to pass. And I broke down in the toilet, um, a place I have very bad memories of anyway in our old house. And uh, what happened was throughout that week, my sister and my husband and my lovely family would bring me into Hollis Street and they would test the HGC levels of this pregnancy, which were not going down, which were elevating as the week progressed, which was frightening. And they didn't really know why that was happening, but they were certainly keeping an eye on it. And they said, look, it should it should eventually turn a corner, like we should turn a corner. So that's even worse to know that the baby is actually thriving, you know? And you're like, what? So on the Friday of that week, which would have been the kind of end of this course, I was about to go in and I was sitting on my bed in my bedroom and my husband came down with his sandwich on his lunch break to chat and I collapsed. And I was in agony. I've never felt, it must be similar to someone having, I suppose, ruptured appendix or, I don't know, some awful, like it was that feeling my whole stomach was like, ah, the pain was so bad. I was, you know, screaming in pain and holding my stomach. And I was like, God, is this, am I in labor? What is this? You know, it was very um, hard to take. So he brought me obviously straight in. And yeah, I was told you're 
left fallopian tube has ruptured, the pregnancy has, and we got to get you into emergency surgery. And here I was trying to um, make sure I was going to keep that tube, was trying to do the right thing by my body and everything else. And yeah, I, I had to go under the, the knife, so to speak. It's, it's, it sounds so surreal and like I'm tr- like trying to take it all in. And what was going through your mind when like, because you've reached the point where all this kind of terrible stuff has been happening. And then the thing that you really didn't want to happen and you were doing everything that you were, you know, you were taking the medication and it was supposed to be going X this way. And then you're told, well, actually, no, like worst case scenario is kind of it's happening. What was going through your mind at that point? I don't know. I wasn't really in my right mind, I would say I was in a very strange place. Like I was, firstly, I wasn't pregnant where there was an announcement or there was a length of time or there was anyone knowing. So you can imagine how strange that is to then have to go and tell a bunch of people like your friends and family, oh, I'm I'm getting a ectopic pregnancy dealt with. And they're like, we didn't know you were pregnant. And you're like, yeah. And then you're trying to explain, well, I didn't think I was pregnant either, but didn't you just have a loss? Yeah, no, I know. But the, so I didn't really understand what was happening. I think people were confused and they were a bit like, what? She's some kind of medical, I'd say people were like, she's some medical freak, like what? And I was trying to get my head around the fact that I'd gotten pregnant again and we didn't know. I was annoyed because I thought if I'd done something to put this in jeopardy, which of course is not the case. We are, we are not responsible for these things. We are not. It, particularly an ectopic is nothing. It is not, it's a complete freak. It's a freak of nature. We don't, they don't know why it happens. It does happen. And the problem with ectopics, if you have one once, there is then a higher chance of having it again. But I don't know what mindset I was in. I was in a very dark place, though. I wasn't sure I was able to engage with my daughter or my husband. I was definitely in my own. You know, when you're in the zone, I was like, we just need to, that week was just like, this is what we've got to deal with. And then we move on, you know, and obviously work were giving me that time to to get through that. And so I must also state that the morning before I had the rupture, I was walking around my area with the dog, um, and my shoulders felt very sore. So my shoulders, the top of my shoulders, the tips of them, it was tingly and painful as if I'd done something really remarkable in the gym or run or I had some kind of issue at my back. But my shoulders were tingling and sore and I felt very, very sick. Now, this is apparently a sign. You can look it up with ectopics where they're at a pretty bad point that it's usually the blood internally. I wasn't grieving yet, I would say. I wasn't crying much yet and I didn't have a lot of other thoughts except we're in this, we've got to get through this. I can't believe I'm pregnant again. Anyway, I can tell you now everything pretty much flooded from the time I had the surgery to after that and then all of those months afterwards. So, you know, getting the best advice from my consultant at the time, Dr. Declan Keane, who was absolutely phenomenal and delivered my first child in Hollis Street and is just a really gorgeous man um, who has huge, you know, he's got great bedside manner and he's so smart and I trust him with my life. He um, operated on me. Um, he had obviously been the one to help me initially with methotrexate. He was obviously gutted to see me back in there and I do remember him arriving in with the suit. I think he'd been at an event and I just thought, wow, what a, (laughs) he's a gorgeous person. He came in and he did it. But I do remember waking and, you know, there was a lot of things I didn't really touch on before. I've spoken and written about this, but there was a lot of things that happened where they had to internally examine me and obviously do a lot of scanning before they started the, the operation where I could see the baby in the heartbeat. You know, I could see it. And that was, that'll never leave me. And there was other things that'll never leave me. They then carried out, um, under general anaesthetic, the operation. They did a great job. They got out the tube and pregnancy. 
But I remember waking and I'd say because I'd been heavily sedated, it was probably out of my mind anyway. I could hear a baby being born in the labour ward or thought I could. I mean, who knows, yeah. Sarah? Yeah, yeah. And screaming that I wanted to have my baby and why had they not given, you know, completely obviously out of my mind and just could not cope couldn't cope was really devastated and I think it hit me just then and there I think the waking up the depression definitely hit and I was given ketamine which is kind of embarrassing to admit but I was what, yeah what was the ketamine for exactly I mean my mum oh. was like that's strange but I was given it I presume I was out of my mind you know I, I'd say I was very upset and they really had to just knock that on the head so I was given that and after that I Found it all pretty grim and I had a lady from the bereavement centre and I know they're excellent, but she came to me to talk to me and I was like, no, I'm absolutely grand, but thanks. Would you want to follow up account? No, I'm good. I I got myself discharged early and I headed on home with this massive wound. You know, I had, you know, a few little marks from where they had taken everything out, but things were probably the hardest when I got out. I had such an up, you know, outpouring of support and love. I don't know whether it's because people were at home during COVID and they were just kind of listening um, to my story. I was doing a little bit of on Instagram, sharing a little bit because I do share. I don't know whether it's just because I have gorgeous people in my life, but I remember just beautiful flowers arriving, dinners, kindness towards my daughter Gia, you know, offering to take her, just tons of love. I've never actually felt so loved in my entire life. I probably never will again. And I took to the bed and I was on a lot of medication. The pain was pretty intense. And like an Egypt, I got an infection in that. And it just kind of, I think it just kind of wrapped it up for how crappy I was feeling and was put on an antibiotic. Uh, so that was all of that. I did not deal with it in counselling at all. And I was also told not to try and get pregnant for three to four months. Um, but that summer in June, I was pregnant again. And I lost that one, unfortunately. So, yeah. Thank you, Rebecca. Obviously, I've read what you've put out there and, and read the articles, and but I actually don't think I realise quite the extent of everything that happened and so close together. I feel for you so, so much like that level of continuous heartache over well, a time period. I'm also responsible for that too, though. I mean, I, I do take responsibility for not... I was impatient and I was still trying to get pregnant in a time that my body, and I do firmly believe my body was, and I say it now to people, like, give yourself that rest. I know we're dying for something, but sometimes we'll die of that thing. Like, give yourself time to heal. And I I do claim responsibility for just gung-ho, going for it each time and not, you know, when my body was ready. And it was definitely not ready that year, obviously. I do take signs from that. Was it my age? Was it my health? Was it the fact I'd gone through a number of things? I don't know. But yeah, we did We did get pregnant in that June. And the day that I announced it to my mum and dad, I think it was probably eight weeks or so. And I thought this this would be good. Um, it should be okay, you know. And I had my scan. I think it was happening the week after. Um, I had a fall in a playground, nothing major. I'd literally slipped down a little kind of ravine. And I remember thinking, this is it. And yeah, lo and behold, I started bleeding a week later, but I don't think that was connected at all. I just don't think my body was ready. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. That was it with regards to me and my husband kind of reaching our peak grief. And I went into Hollis Street. He sat outside in the car. Obviously, he couldn't come in to confirm that loss. And they said, yeah. And that was that. I took myself home and I, I we got on with our lives. Um, but that, that grief, it doesn't leave you. And it's funny when you go on to have you know, a second or third child or your first child, you know, people go, oh, thank God, now you've got your child. And it's like, yeah, no, totally. Um, I could not be luckier 
but it, it doesn't, it hits you. It hit me the other day. I was talking to someone about something else and I was on a plane journey and it hit me again. It does sometimes hit me and it's, it's just, I don't think it'll ever leave me. I do sometimes grieve those little babas for what they would have been and I'll never know. And that is very hard. And I didn't save the, what was taken out of me with the ectopic. Some people do and they bury them or they have rituals or they do. I didn't. And I think that was better for me at the time mentally, but I do often wonder, you know. Time for a really quick break. This episode is proudly brought to you in partnership with new mindfulness brand, Pause Penny. Their gratitude and manifestation products help to simplify your at-home mindfulness practices. Over the last year, I really started to think about my own wellness. But to be honest, mindfulness was not something I'd ever really thought about. It's not something that I considered for myself. But what I love about the Pause Penny Gratitude Packs is that it allows me that time to focus, to take a break and think about what brings me joy in the everyday. And that's something I really needed. So if you have been looking to invest in your mindset, invest in your positivity in 2023, then head to pausepenny.com or check them out on Instagram at pause.penny. Now back to the chat. I think when we're talking about miscarriages and I think ectopic is obviously quite different, but I think there's a lot of confusion around grieving a miscarriage. but there's a school of thought, isn't there, Sarah? And I think we can all agree where generationally, like women, and I think I've written it recently on a a post on Instagram. Obviously, Instagram is just so profound, isn't it? We can all share our (laughs) deepest and darkest, but it was really regarding how, yes, women miscarried at home or in the bathroom or during sex or they miscarried eight to 10 babies or they had a lot more children. And yes, they suffered. But is that okay? Does that make it any less... Does that mean that they're better women? I know. I think there was just so much shame and I think so much, you know, no one was educated around these things. I'm sure my mum's generation had this happening all the time. And yes, there's also a school of thought that pregnancy was not going to be okay. That was not genetically okay from the start. It was a bad start or an off um, egg or it was you know, a non-starter, as they say, or, you know, a miscarriage. And I'm kind of like, well, it's pregnancy loss. I don't think it's a miss. I don't think we missed anything. We did nothing wrong. It's actually a loss of pregnancy. So there is a school of thought. I know a lot of women who have never gone through it. And I completely, I'm saying this with a lot of love, will never understand. I know that I certainly put my head in the sand. I think there was a lot of devastation over everyone else having their babies. What was wrong with me? There's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of body shaming. I felt very let down by my body. It must similarly be how people feel if they get an illness and they're like, what? You know, I just couldn't get it. I couldn't get my head around it. Were we too late trying? Were we terrible at trying? And I will say there's a whole other podcast in another day for people to touch on the trying to conceive, TTC. It is miserable. I don't care what anyone says about your relationship, your sex life, the excitement of that, the ovulation, when you're in it full throttle and it's not just that kind of casual, we're going to try for baby. When you're in it and you desperately want a baby and you've had loss, it is miserable because I can tell you now, every period you have is a second trauma. Like it's just not fun. It is a failure. You think you're getting an implantation bleed, you have a full seven day period and you're like, oh, back to the beginning again. And the two week wait isn't some fun thing that you and your husband sit around kind of, it's really horrible. And particularly as you get older and you think you're, you know, running out of time. So I would say that's a whole other thing. And it's a psychological drain on a relationship. Um, but yeah, we, we, we had a crap time. And then for some bizarre reason, we got pregnant in the winter. 
So after the loss then in July. June, yeah. June, yeah. sorry. Um, then that winter you got pregnant with your daughter? Mm, yeah. Okay. We, we, we went to ground. We completely just couldn't do it anymore. We just were like, it's just not happening, you know? Yeah. And we were advised by my doctor that it might happen, but perhaps with IVF or some assistance, I think it was assistance, that we should wait and that it could take up to 18 months. And I thought, here I am getting into my late 30s that we should probably get genetic testing because after you have uh, two, three, four, anything like that, you do start to, you know, they do start to investigate it. I think when you have one, there's a bit of a like, this is a glitch and it's not great, but hopefully you will have, you know, an opportunity to get pregnant again. But I think when you have a few, they do have to look at you as a woman or as a man. Or And we did do genetic testing and my husband was obviously grand because that can often be the case. I was not there was something minor wrong with my blood clotting system or how it, there's a very technical name for that. And those tests came back from this university in Edinburgh. It was not cheap. Can I say this is all privileged stuff? I was seeing a consultant in Hollis Street, Dr. Shane Higgins. I moved away from my other consultant because I adored him, but it reminded me too much of all of that sadness. So I was with a new chap who was is phenomenal. And he had asked us to get these tests done and we got those back, those results. And he had said, look, if you do get pregnant again, you'll probably be watched, you know, and put on aspirin and progesterone. Anyway, we didn't even think about getting pregnant again. We had a lot on our minds. And all I know is that Christmas, I went home to my parents and I was like, oh, feeling really funky. I'm feeling really strange. Um, Is it Christmas dinner? Is it tiredness? Is it, I don't know. So I took myself up to our local pharmacy and lo and behold, uh, it said three to four, which is I think six to seven weeks or whatever it is in real, you know, when you're looking at your period or whatever. And I couldn't believe it. But we stayed pretty quiet. We didn't go to town on it. We didn't make a song and dance. I was very nervous, as you can imagine. And I didn't really hold great hope. So you can imagine I had a scan at eight weeks and there was a full-blown happy heartbeat beaten away there but then I had another one at nine ten I had scans every week I was put on aspirin and progesterone pretty miserable stuff progesterone if I'm honest and really Sarah wasn't feeling the buzz like wasn't positive was not shouting this from the rooftops was certainly not having an Instagram moment at all um I had to take tell work at about 15 or 16 weeks because I was starting to show and I was pretty sick and also with COVID it was a danger you know but only on the day of my 20 week scan did I scream crying with delight when they were like, look, she's there, it's there and she's grand and it's all looking great. And I bawled, I bawled for hours. I would say you're holding on to all that tension. Oh, 100%. And fear. I was like, what's wrong with you? I was shaking on the bed, crying. Yeah. He was like, what's wrong? We've been breaking for 20 weeks. And I said, well, only now am I pregnant, you know, yeah. only now. And did you then kind of relax into the, the second half of the pregnancy? No, I became crazy. I became consumed with keeping her. I did odd, odd things, Sarah, that I think only grief can bring you to do odd things. I would drive myself very late at night or two or three in the morning to Hollis Street to ask them to scan me, even though I'd have had a scan the day before or the week before. Or I think that's not obviously great psychologically. It's certainly not normal. Uh, but I did it and they would go, yeah, no, we can confirm. And I said, no, because she wasn't really kicking tonight in bed. Oh, okay. I would have dreams of dead babies or dead embryo. I just had constantly horrendous dreams. And at one point my consultant just said, look, I'm not forcing or pushing or, but I'm encouraging you maybe to see the mental health clinic upstairs. And I did. And that conversation was just me 
bawling my eyes out about the fear of this baby not coming out alive and just delivering it. And I just really couldn't cope with the labour. And I was someone who had a wonderful labour for my first baby and was actually very excited about the labour. But uh, yeah, I had a lot of support. I can only thank those people. My husband was an absolute godsend. My family, we all were just, uh, yeah, kind of quietly praying. And I'm not religious, but she came out anyway. And here she is in this world at 18 months and an absolute devil. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, Rebecca, what what a couple of years that you've had and that you've experienced and lived through. And how do you think that these last few years and living through these griefs and living through these losses has changed you? I'm a completely different person. Um, I don't know if that's in a good or bad way. I don't know what that is, but there's a was a huge change in me. I would have been maybe a head wreck to some people. Um, a very excitable person, hyper, um, positive, overly probably positive. I was a grab life by the, you know what, and I was um, excited by everything. And maybe in a privileged way I was, everything was just great. And I have a little darkness there. There's a darkness. There's this kind of um, a melancholy for, for those things that we went through as a couple. I don't know whether we've ever fully repaired from those or we ever will. I do remember the visceral moment that I gave birth to Simone and looking down and, and saying, is she alive? And I do remember my consultant saying, yeah, and she's six pounds, whatever, and she's perfect. And I was like, I know, but is she actually alive? Is she? And he, he said, yeah, she is. And I found it very tricky when he um, took her to clean her and then handed her back to me and she was fine. I couldn't really comprehend that. But what was actually the most difficult thing was to look at my husband, who through all of this had been steadfast and stoic and, you know, calm in a, in a world of, you can imagine, high emotion and drama. And I could see the, the absolute grief written all over his face that he finally got to let out. And I guess I felt like, what's wrong with you? I remember just going, but look at her. And he was like, I know, but he couldn't contain himself. And that's very hard to look at somebody else in pain. He was in pain, you know, but obviously we were thrilled to have this baby in our arms, which is not the case for everyone. And I know that day we were hearing awful stories from across the hall and my God, did we hold her tight. Um, it's a hard, hard world for couples out there. And some don't make it through these things, Sarah. It's important to note he was really emotional and uh, we held her tight. But yeah, I'm a changed person. I don't really know if I can understand. Am I, am I less patient with bullshit? I think so. I think I'm, I have a strange outlook where in things that people are being tricky or silly or dramatic or making something out of nothing. I don't know if I have that kind of tolerance for bullshit. I'm a little bit more in some ways hard nosed about life. I'm just like, you know what? let's go um, piss or get off the pot. But I'm also hugely empathetic to people's small grievances, small, large, medium size. Like I really, anyone who's going through pregnancy loss, I'm, I want to be there for them. Not, not everyone wants it. And I completely respect that. People really, really want their privacy sometimes with pregnancy loss. Some want a community around them. Some want to scream it from the rooftops. I am a sharer. I like to talk through that stuff. It really remedies me. I remember speaking to Georgie Crawford on The Good Glow. My friends and family said, gosh, you were quite raw. And I probably was, but I, I, it was like I needed to talk, you know. Now, in some ways, I feel like I talked too much about it. And there's a, there is a dirty feeling about that too, but I did talk about it. I don't know. I'm definitely changed, Sarah. It's a tricky one. I adore my children, but I definitely still have a little bit of that inside. And they do say with pregnancy loss, I don't know whether this is a comfort to anyone listening to this, that those cells 
remain in your body apparently forever. So they remain in your body. They're left over from whatever that loss is because you've created life. Like you have actually created something. It sounds crazy, but it's actually scientific. So yeah, I think it is beautiful. I heard that after somebody told me about it after my mum died. So why would would they? So, oh yeah, because I was part of her, but Annie was already a part of me. Does that make yes, sense? Yes. Yeah. So I think it was my mother-in-law told me that actually. And I, I immediately broke down and started crying. But it's something that stayed with me over these last two and a half years and something that I often That's think beautiful. about as well. It is, isn't it? It really, it's really micro-chimerism is. micro-chimerism if people are ever. But that is beautiful that you're part of her forever. And I do think there's such a strong, I think, firstly, Sarah, women are incredible. And I think the maternal, like this mothering, like your mother and the loss of that, but how she's connected to you, your little girl. My have two girls Um, I adore my mother, but these connections, these maternal connections that these little losses and, you know, I'll never know these little humans are there within us for life. But I think you have, you know, you have come through grief with such dignity and poise and even, you know, openness and authenticity and rawness and all of the things that we need because it's just all so confusing. I think that's the main thing. Like you put it really beautifully in your opening, like, it's bloody lonely, it's isolating, it's confusing, and it's so shit. Like, it's just the shittest thing you'll go through, any loss, um, because we all think we're on this earth and everything's going to be dandy, and then, okay, one day in the far distant future at 120 million, we'll die. But we just can't comprehend that we're not, one day we're here and we're not there the next. So um, I am changed. I think it's been beneficial to me. I think perhaps I see things in a, in a different way. But there's a darkness. Um, there's definitely a darkness. I'm not sure how to describe that. I'm sure you know what I'm saying. Um, you have that in a very different way. And I'm sure it's very tricky for you to navigate. But there's a darkness there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And it's hard to, like, specifically put, kind of, I suppose, a name on what that darkness is. Um, but it's it's definitely there mixed in with your sadness and and your disappointment I suppose sometimes your disappointment at life um and disappointment sometimes at how your life has turned out um so grief stays with you forever and it morphs and it changes and then what I find as well it morphs and changes and then it goes back to base one again and then it kind of skips a few bases and then you know it's it's really all over the place some days I'm I think very differently about grief and what happened and then other days I'm sucked right back down into the darkness, as you put it. I actually love that, the darkness. Um, I think it sums it up it up really, really well. And you can let yourself go there. I'm sure you would, would admit that some days you can let yourself go there because you need to go there. And I'm sure with you, and, and I will go through this someday, the connection to your mom and the tears and the reminders and the music is really important. And other days it's actually not, you can't cope and it's palpable and it's just not something you can actually engage with because it'll bring you down too far down that rabbit hole. Um and I know with me, it's it's different what I'm going through. It's not there. I'm very lucky. Like I have these two children. They fill my life um, with joy. But I have on my body physical scars of what happened. I can see them. They're there. I changed my body physically, definitely, um, as all of those kind of things do. And yeah, as a stranger, when I put my, I think also it's changed how I am with my baby. There's a kind of strange attachment. I feel sorry for the poor thing, <laughs> like literally holding on to her for dear life and when I put her to sleep at night, I do remember those those dark nights of my husband where we would just, you know, really hope to God things worked out. I am really lucky, Sarah. I am one of the lucky ones. And I very, very clearly say that I don't at all take my 
life for granted because I have such gorgeous women in my life who are really struggling to have a baby. I think it's something people, you know, people don't really understand unless they're going through it. It's very difficult. So, Well, Rebecca, I commend you for saying that you're one of the lucky ones. I think you have a really fantastic look back at what has happened to you and how you can describe it and kind of analyze it almost. You do have these two gorgeous daughters, but everything you've been through, it's it's been so difficult. Um, and I, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and sharing that with us. I know it's not easy and I know it kind of, it does stay with you after, you know, we've had these conversations as well. So I hope you look, look after yourself this evening. Oh, Sarah, it's an absolute joy. I, I, I've known you, you know, through this kind of world for years and I think you're just, you're pure joy. But I wanted to say how sorry I was for your loss and how it was so closely connected to the birth of a baby. And there's something so devastating about that, but also, I suppose, so beautiful that you had life to kind of, I suppose, have tight when you're going through hell. So I'm super sorry for you and hopefully we get to see each other soon. And thank you for very much for having me. Thank you, Rebecca. That was so lovely. Just a huge thank you to Rebecca for coming on today and sharing her story. There are points where I was talking with Rebecca and she was telling me her story that I was actually getting chills throughout my body. The confusion, the pain, the darkness that Rebecca had to experience was just absolutely heartbreaking. But as I'm talking to her, like her courage just completely shone through. If you'd like to follow Rebecca, you can head over to her Instagram page at InstaRebeccaHoran. And if you have enjoyed listening to the episode, please consider rating and reviewing on whatever platform you listen in on. Or perhaps if you have a friend or family member who may be going through something difficult and may be able to take something from these episodes, please do share it with them. And then some final words to leave you with. Sometimes it's just the smallest things that can make the biggest difference to people. Check in on your family and friends. We never know what people are going through.